The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Good morning. Um, my name is Olivia, and I'll be reading this scripture for us uh, from Luke 15, verses 1 through 10. Follow along as I read, please. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thank you, Olivia. Good morning, everybody. uh, we are, uh, I think, uh, one more week away uh, from fin- finishing this series after today, and then we'll, we'll move into a new series after that. But um, many of you uh, had a chance to come last Sunday afternoon at about 4 o'clock p.m. for a forum, an open forum and a panel discussion on what is called Christian deconstruction. And <clears throat> there are two kinds of deconstruction. One would be the unrighteous kind, uh, which is an attempt to deconstruct long-held historic orthodox biblically-based truths in favor of, of one's own desires, in favor of one's own culture, uh, in favor of, one, of, of current trends, uh, and so on, and uh, doing away with, with certain aspects of Scripture that, that don't feel right to me at this time. That's unrighteous deconstruction, where you actually try to dismantle actual Christianity. And then there is a righteous form of deconstruction, where you attempt to deconstruct counterfeit expressions and bad expressions of real and authentic Christianity in hopes of restoring real and authentic Christianity. So, Andy Osinga, who was uh, the artist, the the recording artist, the musician uh, on the panel, uh, talked a lot about how his own church upbringing almost drove him away from the faith. Uh, he said he felt like it was too rigid, too rule-oriented, not grace-oriented enough, too politically charged uh, to us against them, and it almost shipwrecked his faith, he said. Uh, and he quoted uh, in his sharing uh, something that is often attributed to Gandhi. We're not, we don't have any proof that Gandhi said this, but let's run with it. Uh, where Gandhi allegedly said, I like your Christ, but I do not like your Christians because your Christians 
are so unlike your Christ. And then uh, Andy Osinga went on to say, or also said in his, his, uh, his sharing, uh, and I quote, we are all fallen and broken. Like every Bible character, we are a mix of glory and dirt. Where we have made a mess, we as the church should be leading with apology and repentance. And that is what is so sorely lacking and why so many of us don't feel that we can quite belong. So here I am. I love Jesus. I'm very much a part of a local church. I work in full-time ministry. I tithe. I pray. I read the Bible. I teach my kids about it. I stuck around but I no longer call myself an evangelical, and I really struggle with calling myself a Christian. And to various degrees, all of my friends feel this way also. They use words like homeless, orphaned, and scattered. So, enters Jesus, Luke chapter 15, welcoming these very types of people. Homeless, orphaned, scattered, in the form in this passage of spiritually awakened tax collectors and sinners. So, I'd like to talk a little bit about what it, what it might look like to reconstruct a vision for a Christianity that Jesus would want to get behind and also in front of. Jesus welcomes tax collectors and sinners. That'll be number one. Jesus eats with tax collectors and sinners. That'll be number two. And then number three will be his den and table await us. So let's start with Jesus welcomes tax collectors and sinners. So the tax collectors were infamously known as those who made a career out of uh, essentially selling out their own people in order to line their own pockets and using the power of Rome to help them do that. Sinners is kind of a catch-all phrase for anyone who would be regarded as morally suspect by the religious gatekeepers. And uh, there's a parable that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 18, and it says that he, he tells this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and looked down on other people with contempt. And in this parable, Jesus contrasts the prayer of a Pharisee, a religious gatekeeper, and a tax collector or a sinner. And the Pharisee prays like this, Thank you, my God, that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or or even this tax collector over here. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all I get. It literally says in the original language that he prays this prayer to himself. Uh, He's trying to give himself a pep talk about how good he is compared to everybody else around him. Meanwhile, the tax collector over here then prays this prayer, God have mercy on me, the sinner. The definite article, the the, is is in the original language also, which I'll I'll talk about the, the significance of that in a second. But two things are true about the tax collector. Number one, he's guilty and he knows it. No defenses, no excuses, uh, and, and he, just, he just comes open-handed with, with, with his own moral, spiritual bereftness before God. And I want to ask you, have you ever apologized to somebody? You know, you, you did something to hurt someone, and then you apologize to them, and their response to you is, I forgive you. And then, you, and then you're sitting there like, 
Is that it? Um, you know, as if to say or at least to feel, I'm accepting apologies too, or, or how dare you say you forgive me after I've asked, after I've apologized to you, right? There's something, there's this defense mechanism, isn't there, in, in the human heart that, that, that even gets offended at, at, at hearing somebody else say I forgive you after you've asked them to. But the tax collector owns it. And, and what's really remarkable here is he takes no apparent offense whatsoever at the insult that was just lobbed in his direction by the praying Pharisee right next to him. Thank you that I'm not like this tax collector over here. And what, is, what does he do? He says, have mercy on me, God, the sinner. In other words, I, as far as I'm concerned, I'm the only sinner in this place, or at least I'm the chief thereof. And, and, and so the posture of this judgy Pharisee right next to him is clearly in his mind and heart the Lord's concern. This is not my concern. This is the Lord's concern. So he's guilty and he knows it, but he's also hurting as a result of his guilt. And so one of the wonderful things about the Presbyterian tradition is that we have all these really wonderful, um, you know, over the course of years, documents that, that summarize the theology and the teaching and the truths that are in, in Scripture, in the Bible. And one of those documents is called the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And uh, it's a series of question and answers. And the, the answer to question uh, 17 in the Westminster Shorter Catechism uh, uh, goes like this. It says that the fall of humanity in the Garden of Eden brought mankind into an estate of sin and misery. Not just in a state of sin, but in a state of sin and misery. As if to say that the two are a couple. They always travel together. They never divorce one another. They, they, they never show up, you know, one sh- have one show up and the other not show up. Sin and misery always show up together, and misery is typically the byproduct of sin. And sometimes we sin more in order to get out of the misery, and it creates more misery. But that's what we're dealing with here. If we we go uh, just a few verses later in this very chapter, we see this famous story of of the the young man that we know as the prodigal son who leveled the worst insult and and the most heart-stinging insult toward his own father as if to say, I wish you were dead. He says, Father, I want my inheritance and I want it now. As if to say, I, I wish you were already gone because the only thing I want from you is what comes from your hand. I don't want your face. I don't need a relationship. I have no desire for that. I just want what's coming to me. So give me what you're going to give me when you die so I can just go on with my own life. And the Father, the Father gives it to him. And he goes out and he blows the inheritance. He becomes destitute. He becomes homeless. He becomes friendless. He becomes miserable. And and, and it's a picture of the judgment of God. But here's the thing about the judgment of God. God doesn't have to do a thing. His own choices actually are his judgment because his choices brought the misery because the, the, the way the universe works is you don't run away from a loving home like that and insult it on the way, on, on your way out. And so here, this parable of the lost sheep, it, it tells a similar story. If anybody has ever farmed sheep or hung out with sheep, 
you know that sheep are, uh, they're stinky, they're dumb, they're bad listeners, they have a habit of biting the hands that feed them, and by and large, they're miserable <laughs> unless they surrender themselves to the control and guidance and leadership of the shepherd. They're, they, they're always falling into misery. You know, G.K. Chesterton, you know, attached this kind of teaching and thought to, to our relationship with the law of God, with the commands of God. Like, think the Ten Commandments, Sermon on the Mount, for instance. Chesterton said, man cannot break the laws of God. He can only break himself against them. That's food for thought. But here's the thing about Jesus. You would expect him to, to say, lost people get lost. Prodigal son just go away. I never want to see you either. I don't want to have a relationship with you either. But, but we see in the parable that the father in this parable never once holds this, this, this son in contempt. He, he, he just waits with longing at home, waiting for, for, for the first sight of, of his son returning home in his misery and, and, and poverty after squandering half of the household wealth, and, and he just you know, humiliates himself by publicly, you know, gushing his son with love and affection. Welcome home. Throws a big party. And the conclusion there is, is pretty remarkable. And Jesus gives us the conclusion. Ninety-nine sheep who are righteous, need no repenting, are in good standing, he leaves all of these easygoing, low-maintenance, under-his-control people to go after the high-maintenance one, the lost one. And then the closer is, there is more joy in heaven over one humble sinner who repents than over 99 pious saints. And then he reinforces it in verses 8 through 10 with another parable about a woman, woman, with, woman with 10 coins. She loses one coin, and, and she basically makes it her, her life's mission. She stops everything to go on a, 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 a full-on search, shakes the earth to find this lost coin, finds it, rejoices, throws a party. And the conclusion, again, is there's more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. We are those sheep. We have Old Testament teachings and New Testament teachings to, to constantly remind us of that. One of the Old Testament teachings is very vivid, very abrupt. It, it's the prophet Hosea. There's a whole book about a man named Hosea who is a faithful husband to a woman who enters into prostitution while being married to him and shares their marriage bed with, with countless other people. And God's God's word to Hosea in that context is be loyal to her, be faithful to her, pursue her, chase her down. Don't divorce her as you would have every right to. But what I want you to be for me, Hosea, is a picture for the rest of the world of what it's like for me to be related to you. And what my response is when you get in bed with your drink and sex and ambition and, and, and greed and, and, and all the other things that you're plugging your umbilical cord into to get life when I'm, when I'm here all along in the safety of covenant. 
The message of Hosea is, my people are Gomer. That's the name of Hosea's wife. My people are Gomer. And here's what I say to my people. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and steadfast love and mercy. That's God's answer to prostitution and infidelity among his people. Then there's a New Testament uh, example, very famous. This is the Apostle Paul at the end of his life and ministry. He's planted countless churches. He's shepherded and pastored countless people. He's been in prison for his faith. Uh, He's given his life for Christ and the cause. And at the end of his life and ministry, he says, I am the chief of sinners. And he, he doesn't say I was. He speaks in present tense. I am the, the, the chief of all sinners. And then what comes after this? Worship. Worship. How do you get from I'm the chief of sinners to worship? Well, he goes straight to the mercy of God, which, which John Mark reminded us. It, it's the taking off of judgment. It's the taking off of, of burdens the mercy of God is, so that we can live free in, in, in the presence and in the love of God, and eat and drink freely at the table of God as we receive the welcome of God. The truth about Jesus Christ is that he was begotten to seek, to save, and to welcome the prostitutes of Gomer's world and the pastors of Paul's world and everyone in between who loses their way into the far country. As Melville famously said, heaven have mercy on us all, pagans and Presbyterians alike, for we are all dreadfully cracked about the head and sadly need mending. Things about you that discourage you, disappoint you, disgust you the most about yourself These are the very things that activate and ignite the depths of God's love for you. That's what sets Christianity apart from every other religion, every other set of rules and expectations, every other hurdle and wall that that some philosophy demands that you climb in order to stay in its good graces or get into its good graces. Jesus is the opposite of that. Your discouragement, your disappointment, your disgust with you are triggers for him. Not triggers to run away from you, not triggers to turn away from you, but but triggers to run towards you and, and, and embrace you as the father embraces the prodigal. Doesn't even allow him to give an I'm sorry speech. Cuts him off and says, no, embrace. That's where we're starting here. To the degree that, that, that this reality of Jesus Christ sinks into our hearts, to the degree that we're aware of it, to the degree that it's, it's in the front of our memory as opposed to buried in, in, our, in the world of our dreams, to that degree, our own self-righteousness and contempt fade away. And this new posture starts to emerge of beggars who are eager to tell other beggars where the bread is, to quote, Steve Brown, a chain-smoking pastor from Florida. So when Todd Teller, David Filson, and I and, and others were, um, were studying at Covenant Theological Seminary, we'll put Kevin Twitt in there as well, um, there was this church that got started in the urban core 
of St. Louis, Missouri. It's still there, a multi-site church like Christ Pres. And it's called New City Fellowship. And one of the remarkable things, is I, I, as I first read their list of core values, it says that one of their core values is weakness. I mean, that's not great marketing, but, but, it, but it's thoroughly biblical. Weakness. Maybe it is great marketing because we're all weak. We're just secretive about it. But their pastor, I remember listening to their pastor, Barry Henning, give a very public sermon to, uh, to the seminary student body. And he was talking about a couple that, that, that lived near the, the, the church that he pastored. Um, they were intimately involved with one another without being married to one another. And they were also both intimately involved with a lot of other people. And their reason for seeking him out was for relational counseling. And they said to him, you know, we're just finding we're not connecting as well as we would like to. And we just wonder if maybe you could help us find some insights that would help us connect better. And, and immediately his heart went to Pharisee mode. Oh, I'll tell you all the laws you're breaking. I'll tell you about all the things you're doing wrong that got you in this ditch. And th- there are times for conversations like that, but they have to be enveloped in what comes next. A humble heart, because very quickly his heart shifted from being the Pharisee to being the tax collector when he caught himself looking up her skirt. She had this mini skirt, and, and, and his eyes went where his eyes aren't meant to go, and, and immediately he was struck to the core, I am no different. And that's the only thing that actually qualifies me to enter into this pastoral moment with this man and this woman who are asking for relationship counseling. He said he was able to meet them in in, in ways that Jesus would instead of ways that the Pharisee would. Our misery and his pursuit are the same thing. They're the same thing. Jesus welcomes tax collectors and sinners. He also eats with tax collectors and sinners. So it's, an, it's one thing to invite people into your home, kind of as a one-off, hey, you know, I like you. Nice conversation that we had, you know, here or there. Um, come on over, eat, you know, you, you're done. Okay, great. It was great hanging out with them. No follow-up, no friendship. See you later. Um, it's, it's one thing to kind of in a one-off sort of way, invite people into your world and into your home, it's quite another to want them and to demonstrate consistently you want them. You know, there's this touching story about Gandhi um, you know, who always traveled by train. Even when he was this global influencer and, you know, had access to, to leaders of nations and all the rest, he never got past traveling by train as his preferred way to travel. And he never got past wanting to ride on the third-class car. And one time somebody asked him, why do you ride third-class? You're, you're Mahatma Gandhi, for goodness sake. You could, you could have your own private jet. Why, why do you ride thir- third-class on the train? And his, his answer was, because there is no fourth-class. And he would say, Gandhi would many times, and in many occasions, that the primary inspiration for his humanitarian ethic was Jesus Christ. And yet he chose Hinduism instead of Christianity. Because while he, he would on some level um, at least regard himself as a friend or an admirer of Christ, he could not bring himself to call himself a Christian. 
And here's what he says in his autobiography about why he chose Hinduism over Christianity in spite of his affection for Jesus. He says, The pious lives of Christians did not give me anything that the lives of men of other faiths had failed to give. I had seen in other lives just the same reformation that I had heard of among Christians. Philosophically, there was nothing extraordinary in Christian principles. And from the point of view of sacrifice, it seemed to me that Hindus greatly surpassed the Christians. It was impossible for me to regard Christianity as a perfect religion or even the greatest of all religions, again, on the basis of his observation of the followers of Christ. It sounds like there's something in there somewhere to deconstruct in a good way, in a righteous way, to get back to pure Christianity. You remember Andy Osinga's advice that I I read at the opening of this sermon that he said last Sunday night so eloquently We as the church should be leading with apology and repentance. That's been our parenting strategy. Patty and I realized very early on we will not be able to pull the wool over our kids' heads by by trying to live such upright, upstanding lives in front of them that that, that they see very little or no flaws in us. We just knew like very early on that's not going to happen. And so we just agreed together very early on, like, like let's because that's true, let's, let's make sure our kids remember us as, as parents who apologize, as parents who own when we, when we hurt them, and as parents who invite us to tell us when and how we've hurt them so that we can enter into that moment with them and not leave them alone in it. And so Andy Osinga says, this is, this is actually what Christians should be known for is, is, is apologies for ways that our brand of Christianity has at times been less Christian than Gandhi's Hinduism. That's a problem. That's a symptom. Such that a man who is so inspired by Christ himself could not find our Christianity relatable in light of that. Apologies. And then repentance. You know, maybe you're sitting there, you know, like the tax collector. You feel like I'm at the end of myself. You've been going through something. You, you, you know, this place in your, your story that you're in right now is a, is a place of shame and, and self-loathing, and, and you're tempted to do things to medicate, uh, or you, you're tempted to just retreat and withdrawal and run away. Maybe you're like the tax collector. You feel like you're at the end of yourself with something, but in God's world, and I think this is part of what this, these parables tell us, in God's world, the end of yourself is actually your true beginning. A broken and contrite heart, the Psalms tell us, an adulterer and a murderer, an abuser of power, King David wrote these words, a broken and contrite heart, the Lord will not despise how far is too far gone, though? Well, Jesus, Jesus says, well, since you asked, there is one sin from which there is no recovery. It's called the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Anyone who is guilty of committing this sin, Jesus says, is guilty of an eternal sin, and they will perish forever, and they are not recoverable. And so the great Puritan John Bunyan actually writes in, in Grace Abounding of the Chief of Sinners about an occasion where he thought he had blasphemed the Holy Spirit because he said out loud, I blaspheme the Holy Spirit. And he was struck with terror 
when, when suddenly he realized, oh, I want Jesus so much, but I don't know if I have access anymore because I said the words. I said them. I did that. I said that. Here's where Greek study helps us. In the passage in Matthew's gospel where Jesus says whoever commits this sin is guilty of an eternal sin and cannot be recovered, the verb form is present indicative active, which means it's continual. Whoever continues to commit this sin cannot be recovered. Whoever continues to try to make a life with God apart from the resources of Jesus Christ, his life, death, burial, and resurrection, and his relentless pursuit of you, you, there's nothing left except the very thing you're asking for is for him not to be in your world. Our own worst enemy, that's another, that's another thing we think. I'm my own worst enemy. Okay, maybe God will forgive me, but I can't forgive myself. This is where Andrew Peterson's lovely song comes in, the lyric of which says, be kind to yourself because you've got to learn to love your enemy too. You know, let your sense of lostness, whether you're you're just considering Christianity, and maybe that's the thing that's, that's brought you here is you've sinned and you're miserable and you're, you're lonely and isolated and all these things. Or maybe you've been a Christian for 40 years and you feel lost right now from the heart and ways of Jesus. And you want Him so much, you just don't know if He's reciprocating that anymore. This is where C.S. Lewis helps. He says, seek him with seriousness because unless he wanted you, you would not want him. That desire and longing in your heart to have more of Christ or to return to Christ, to be recovered by Christ, is put there by him. It's his invitation. Finally, his den and his table await us. There are no pariahs. At Jesus's, in Jesus' den or at Jesus' table. None. The elder brother wanted to turn his younger brother into a pariah. Oh, let me remind you, Father, of all this, this wreckage that he's caused for the family, that he's squandered half of your inheritance, which, you know, what the, the elder brother is thinking, well, there's, what's left is mine, and if he comes home, he gets half of that too. And I only get 25%, and that's not been in my retirement plan. You know, he wants to excoriate his younger brother. And the father's answer is a party. It's more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner that repents than over 99 pious saints who think they need no repentance. You know, those who were once homeless, orphaned, and scattered are now home, adopted, and gathered around his table of mercy and new beginnings. That's the gospel. That's Christianity. You know, the shepherd and widow, they're both pointers. They're road signs. We have to keep going past them to, to where and to whom they point. The shepherd and the widow are, are, are pointers. Their obsession, especially with, with the lost sheep and, and, and the lost coin and recovering them, resemble the, the obsession of Jesus to, to bring all of his lost children home 
sometimes again and again and again. And he'll scale heaven and earth. He'll let himself be scaled and scalped in order to make it happen. The cross of Jesus is a declaration of two things. Number one, how lost we are without him. If you don't have Jesus, you don't want Jesus, I have no hope to offer you. Full stop. No hope. The other thing that the cross declares is how wanted and how welcome you are by him, regardless of your history. In Hebrews 12 says, therefore, since, not if, but since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, that's the joy in heaven peace, a cloud of witnesses, the angels, the saints who have gone to glory, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The joy set before Jesus. What, what did Jesus not have in his possession that, that, that was a source of joy that he was longing after? It was you and me. It was his, his unclaimed lost sheep, his unclaimed kids. And that's where the cross of Jesus comes in. You know, Jesus' very last conversation face-to-face with somebody was on the cross, and it happened with a thief. He was crucified in the middle of, of two thieves, and, and for a moment, those two thieves were both mocking him and spitting on him and saying all kinds of insulting things. They were joining all the soldiers below who were mocking all three of them, and they, the two of them just turned on Jesus and mocked him. Save yourself if, you, if you're who you say you are. And for one of the thieves, his conscience gets to him at some point in that conversation, and he leans over to the Lord from, from the cross where he's hanging. He says, will you please forgive me? Will you please, will you please remember me? He doesn't even ask for forgiveness. He says, will you remember me in your kingdom? And Jesus says, surely I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. So I'll close with, with an anecdote. It's a sermon clip that's out there from Alastair Begg, who's a... Um, who's a pastor in the Cleveland, Ohio area. And he says this. He says, when I get to heaven, the first person I want to talk to, second to Jesus, is that thief on the cross. You know, I, I want to ask him, like, how did that shake out for you, man? You were cussing Jesus out with the other thief as he hung between you. You were never in a Bible study. You were never baptized. You knew nothing about church membership. Yeah, you made it. How did you make it? And then an angel comes into the conversation. Yeah, what are you doing here, man? And the thief's like, I don't know. And the angel's like, what? Why are you here? And then some follow-up questions. Are you clear about the meaning of justification by faith? I've never heard of it. Do you believe in the full inspiration and inerrancy of the Holy Scriptures from Genesis to Revelation? Never heard of it. Then on what basis are you here? And his answer, the man on the middle cross said I could come. That's it. Martin Luther says, most of your Christianity is lived outside of you and not by you. 
the life, death, burial, resurrection, and relentless pursuit of your heart by Jesus Christ, by whatever means necessary. That's what gets you there. The man on the middle cross said you could come. And now he invites us to come to receive the bread and the cup, the body and the blood, to drive it home to our hearts. So let's pray. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, even and especially the worst of them all, said Pastor Paul, missionary Paul, church planter Paul, Bible teacher. What must that mean for us, Lord? What must that mean for us? That man, that same man, having once been, by his own admission, a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, just as King David has, had been, who you now refer to as your father, calling yourself the son of David. Father, let this grace sink into our lives and our hearts somehow, some way, even as we receive the nourishment of your body and blood through the bread and the cup now we pray. Set it apart that we may not only receive the physical elements into our bodies, but the very real presence of Jesus Christ into our souls, uh, that they not only represent, but, but, but solidify his presence and his favor. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.